Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 8. We, um, I was thinking a little bit over the last couple of days about um, some of the ways that um, I experienced some of the teachings that I heard in, uh, in my upbringing. I, was, uh, I got saved just before I was six years old, just a couple of days before my sixth birthday. And um, got saved at home praying with my mom. And uh, I was very much involved in a Baptist church. Um, mom and I didn't really go to church together for very long. She was part of a Presbyterian church, and I went to the Southern Baptist church. As I understand it, the uh, Southern Baptist said that my mom had to be baptized again because she was baptized in the Presbyterian church and they sprinkled you. Well, Baptists can't, can't handle that sprinkling stuff. So they told my mom that she was going to have to get baptized again, immersed. And uh, that didn't sit real well with her. I don't know if it was the issue itself or if it was just the way that they presented or whatever. But anyway, she'd drop me off at church and go to her own church. And so I had a lot of friends um, all but family throughout the years that I was going to the Baptist church and um, our Baptist church I, I know they're all different you can't um, paint anybody with a broad brush or shouldn't try to and I'm not, not attempting to do that but the real emphasis that I remember going to um, church as a kid and a young teenager was about uh, rededicating your life to the Lord and the reason that was such an issue is because we didn't have the, the wherewithal or the strength to, to resist the devil and resist temptations and so forth. Now, don't get me wrong. We all knew that the devil was bad. We knew that the devil was evil and uh, that we were supposed to resist temptation. But nobody had the power to do that in and of themselves. They told us what we were supposed to do, but they didn't tell us how to do it. And so rededication was a big deal Sunday after Sunday, you see many of the same people. Well, not every Sunday, but it wasn't uncommon to see certain ones once a month. And um, we had a, what was considered to be a revival in our youth group, our children's group. We really weren't even youth yet. And, and that all came about, was precipitated by the fact that about four of us went down to the altar to rededicate our lives to the Lord. And the church came undone. Everybody thought this is the coolest thing that's ever happened. Look, we've got a revival. Here's some of our young people that, and we had a heart toward God. We loved God. But it was, it was one of the most difficult and challenging times that I can recall looking back during the years of my life. Because we were all frustrated. And so we'd rededicate our lives to the Lord. We did that. We did that often. It got to where we could just quit going down. The young people sat up in the balcony, and it was a long way to get down there to the front. And so we just rededicate our lives to the Lord every Sunday sitting in our own seat. And, um, and we were frustrated. I, I particularly was frustrated. There were a couple of friends that, that I had that were uh, pretty much on the same page. But I was extremely frustrated because I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew that I was supposed to commit my life to the Lord and resist sin and live a good life without sinning myself. And I, I knew that's what I was supposed to do. But I didn't know how. I didn't have any power to do it, to bring it off. And so it, as happened with every age group, not just the kids, the, the people that experienced that same thing finally got to the point where you just kind of gave up on the inside. I can't do what I'm supposed to do. I can't do what they're telling me the Bible says for me to do. So you just pull back. And, uh, and I know that was the case with a lot of the uh, adults in, uh, in the church too. Because it's so frustrating to try to be something for God when you don't have the power or don't know the power you have to, to accomplish it. And when I heard Brother Hagin, this guy... The first thing that attracted me to him, now I heard some stories, I heard uh, um, some of the healings and things that, um, that had taken place in his ministry and heard about how Jesus appeared to him and put the finger of his, the right 
forefinger of his right hand in the palms of Brother Hagin's hands and gave him a special healing anointing. All that stuff was wow to me. But one of the things that got me more than anything else is that Brother Hagin talked about knowing what God was like. I never knew that you could know God. Now, don't get me wrong. I prayed. I heard God talking on the inside of me often. All of God's children, anybody that's ever been born again, Jesus said, my sheep hear and know my voice. If you're born again, you hear from God. Now, you may not know it's God off, uh, right off the bat. And you may not be sensitive enough to, to get some details. But I heard from God. I, I had God talking to me all the time or frequently. But when I got to the place where I was frustrated, frustrated not to be able to do or be what, uh, what I knew the Bible said, that's where I started pulling back. But when I heard Brother Hagin talk about victory and walking in victory and being more than a conqueror, I quickly discovered that he talked about the Word of God not just like it's God's Word. We believe that in the Baptist church. We, we entirely believe that in the Baptist church. This was God's Word. But we never knew it could be used. We didn't look at it, or at least I didn't look at it. Nobody had, uh, that had any influence over me had pointed us in the direction of using the Bible as a guidebook. It's just a book. It was holy, but it was just a book. But when I started hearing Brother Hagin talk about using the Word of God like a tool, using it as a weapon, talked about, he talked about the, the power of God being the Word of God. He talked about the Word of God and God being one. That concept was so foreign to me, I never even considered it. God and His Word are one. It makes perfect sense. It's simple to understand now that I've uh, taken some steps forward in Him. But I never considered that. I never even thought that was possible. Look at John chapter 8. Jesus has uh, been teaching with a lot of the Pharisees and the doctors of the law standing by. And uh, most of the teaching that he did in the chapter was about being sent from his father and his father and I are one and so forth. Pick up reading with me on John chapter 8, verse 30. He said, as he spake these words, many believed on him. Now, again, if you go back and look at the context, he's talking about many of the Pharisees, many of the religious leaders, as well as the common folks. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word... Then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. These scriptures were not some of the first ones that I ever got a hold of. But after I started trying to live according to the word and, and uh, utilize the word as an instruction manual for my life, I would find scriptures such as these, and I couldn't figure out why I never had seen them before. And in reality, I had. See, in the Baptist church, we had these one-year read-through-the-Bible type programs and all that kind of stuff. I had probably, by the time I was 20 years old, I had probably read the Bible through six, maybe seven times on these programs. And you'd get points in the Royal Ambassadors group that I was part of if you read your Bible and did your Bible reading and that kind of stuff. So I worked my way through the Bible several times but it didn't mean anything to me. I look back at it now and I wonder how in the world could it not have meant something to me? But I had so many wrong ideas and wrong perceptions about how God was or who God was and how he operated. I guess the blindness that I was operating in was pretty extensive because these kind of scriptures didn't make any, any difference to me until I made the word my priority. Until I made the word my priority. Look at Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is uh, just beginning his earthly ministry. He's been baptized by John in the Jordan River. He went into the wilderness. Matthew 4 verse 1. Then was Jesus led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. To be is not correct. Where he was tempted of the devil. He didn't go into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted. He went in the wilderness for the purpose of separating himself unto God, fasting for 40 days and nights to prepare himself. 
to prepare himself. Fasting doesn't change God. Jesus isn't out there trying to change God in any way whatsoever. He's out there consecrating himself to God's plan and God's purpose. Well, anytime you do that, the devil is going to come to you. Anytime you start trying to make some spiritual strides or determine that you're going to start doing things according to the way the word says or whatever the case might be, the devil's going to show up. And he did with Jesus. So Jesus now is facing the devil at probably the weakest point of his physical life, not his spiritual life, but probably at the weakest point of his physical life ever before. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward a hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. There were two other temptations that took place, and Jesus answered them the same way. It is written. Here's Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Who is God in the flesh. Now, here's another thing that that I got growing up, and I, I don't know if anybody specifically taught this to me, Uh, I doubt if they did. But the impression that I got, the understanding that I got, was that Jesus was God's son. And the the book, the Bible, the Holy Bible, the record that we have, was not equal to him. I didn't know, well, I may have heard the phrase, but I didn't know how to apply the fact that the Bible says Jesus was the word made flesh. But I didn't in any, any way and would have thought it to be sacrilegious to try to put Jesus in the Bible on an even basis. Jesus was the son of God. The Bible is just a book. And I had no clue what the book was for. Had some great stories. David and Goliath. Moses parting the Red Sea. Really cool stuff in there. But I had no idea that God and his word were one. But Jesus answered the devil three times in the same way it is written. But the first temptation, notice what he said. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What is he telling us? Well, he's saying the same way that, physical, that your physical life is uh, provided for, your physical body is nourished by bread, representative of food, all types of food. He said that's what your spiritual life is like, related to or in connection with the word of God. Now, Jesus said, we know that he talked about in John chapter 10, he contrasted himself and the devil. He said, the thief cometh not for to kill, to steal, and to destroy, but I am come that you might have life, and you might have it more abundantly. What kind of life is he talking about? He can't be just talking about long life physically. What kind of life is he talking about? Well, he's talking about eternal life. Now, I had the idea growing up, up until the time I, well, through my teen years, I had the idea that eternal life was something you really started taking hold of when you got into heaven. God wanted you. He had changed you. He had made you a new person when you gave your heart and your life to him, got saved. But eternal life really was about being in heaven. And it came as a real shock to me as a young, well, early in my 20s. It came as a real shock to me to find out I've got the same eternal life now here on this earth that I'm going to have in heaven. See, I was excusing some of the things I was doing down here because of that flesh that we all heard was bad and lead us in the wrong places and so forth. And so somehow in the other, I, I just imagined, again, I don't think anybody taught me this. I can't see how they would have. But I just imagined that real life starts when you get to heaven. You get rid of your body. But folks, nothing changes with you in going to heaven. You're still you. The same man that's on the inside and operating in our bodies here on the earth will be operating in heaven. That was a shock to me. That was a shock. Because one thing that it did is it relieved me of the excuses that I was making for not living the way that I saw the Bible said. Well, if Jesus is talking about the same kind of life, man shall not live, meaning eternal life. He shall not operate in this everlasting life that was made ours when we asked Jesus into our heart. If he says that man shall live that eternal life, that God kind of life, based on the word, then how in the world did we miss so much 
and fail to recognize that the answer was right in front of us. When I started seeing some of these things, I can't tell you the difference in the impact that it had on me. I saw scriptures like John, uh, James chapter 1, I'm sorry, James chapter 2. No, it's James chapter 1. Let me start in verse 21. James is writing to the church and he said, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. That's a mouthful. It simply means all the wrongdoing that you're involved in. All the uncleanness and all the wrong that you've been participating in. And remember, he's writing to people that, that have been worshiping idols for most of their lives. He's writing to people that have been saved out of the idol worship. Even the Jews had made an idol out of the law of Moses. They were supposed to be worshiping the one true God. And I'm sure to some degree they were. But they've been worshiping idols and the rituals of sacrifice and all that kind of thing. The oral tradition of the rabbis, they've made idols out of that too. So James says, set aside these things and receive with meekness. Meekness just means be teachable. Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now again, he's writing to Christians, so he can't be talking about the word souls there. can't be talking about their spiritual condition. He can't be saying to receive the engrafted word and get saved. These people are already saved. He's already called them brothers and sisters. They're in the family of God. So this salvation of the soul does not mean what we used to utilize it, that phrase, in my church. It's not the saving of the soul. If somebody comes to the altar and gets saved, it wasn't their soul that got saved. It was their spirit that was recreated. James has to know that. He has to be talking about something else other than just salvation. He's talking about the renewing of the mind. He's talking about being conformed to the image of Christ. So he says, lay aside sin... All the stuff that the devil has drawn you into and receive with meekness the engrafted word. He's talking about making the word a part of your life. He's not just talking about hearing the word. He's talking about it being you, it becoming you. That's what engrafted means. It means something that becomes a part of you and will always be a part of you. And he said, receive with engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. It'll affect your mind and your emotion and your will. Verse 22, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Deceiving your own selves. Now, folks, I've got to say in my own situation, in my own life, growing up in the church from the time that I was a young child, all the way up until the time when, uh, when I made plans to go to, to Bible school in 1980, all of that time, I had deceived myself. Because like I said, over those years, I had read through the Bible a number of times, but it wasn't real to me. And the reason it wasn't real to me is the same reason it's not real to anybody else in this situation in my same circumstance. It's because we were reading it, I was reading it to get through the program. Not to find out what God was trying to speak to me about. I really didn't have any intent to be a doer of the word. I didn't know what doer of the word would have been. And as a result, I was headed into deception. And I think back to some of the people, good people, people that I love, people that became part of my life and um, were great examples to me and, and had people that helped me in a variety of ways. I look back and realize the deception that they've been in all of those years, much further into their adult years than me. And it's just heartbreaking. I wonder how God feels about it. I wonder how God feels about his children that are so blinded by the work of the enemy in this natural life and all the things that people pursue in this earthly life at the cost of finding out what Jesus really did for them and operating empowered by what he did. But like I said, I started hearing Brother Hagin talk about things and just the way that he talked about the word he talked about the word like it was real. Thank God it is. That had a huge impact on me. 
Huge impact on me. James says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. We've got a lot of self-deceived Christians. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. The word glass he's talking about is mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh unto the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth or controlleth not his tongue but deceiveth, deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. If you were, if we had an assignment here, if this was an art class and we had an assignment, everybody's going to draw a self-portrait. I don't know about you, but I'd be stuck. Because I don't look at myself in the mirror. And when I was a teenager, I did. But I don't look at myself in the mirror intently enough to have an image burned into me that I would need to paint the picture. At least paint a good picture. You remember that Rockwell, Norman Rockwell painting where he's drawing himself and it shows that he's looking around to see a mirror and uh, painting from that? Well, if we were going to, to paint the picture of ourselves, I don't know about you, but I'd have to do that. I'd have to have a mirror where I keep looking back and forth because I don't look at myself or study myself enough to be able to draw the picture. James is saying that same thing about the word. He's saying most people live, or at least a lot of people live, glancing at the word and the picture that it paints for us, but not with any intent to live it, not with really any, any intent to make it the foundation for our lives. And that's where I was for so many years. It had nothing to do with my relationship with God or my love for God. I was loving God all I knew how to love. I didn't know that you fellowshiped with God through his word. I didn't know that the word became the basis for you understanding, you and I understanding who he is and how he operates. But Brother Hagin talked about it like he knew who God was because of the Bible. Notice this, the man that continues in it. That sounds a lot like what Jesus just said over in John chapter 8. He said to those that believed in him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you'll know the truth. And the truth will make you free. We only know the truth by continuing in the word. James identifies continuing in the word as being a doer of the word. That's the only way that the truth comes. It's amazing to me the, the time that we live and the how quickly things are changing. It's amazing to me how little place truth holds in so many people's lives. I hate the phrase. I mean, it just irritates me to no end when people talk about their truth and your truth. Somebody disagrees with something the Bible says and, and their response all, a lot of times is, well, my, that may be your truth. But what my truth is, is blah, 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 whatever. Folks, the truth is truth. You and I may choose to ignore the truth. But it doesn't change the validity of the truth. The truth is the same and never changes. And Jesus said if we continued in his word, then we'd know the truth and the truth would make us free. Here again, the Bible is talking about using it to accomplish something. That was a foreign concept to me for so many years. You remember over in Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul's talking about putting on the armor of God. There's only one offensive weapon that he refers to and that is the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. The word's a weapon? Sure, just as much as a sword is a weapon or a tool to accomplish something. Earlier in that uh, book letter that um, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, he tells us what spiritual growth is about. He said, but speaking, in, speaking the truth in love, his prayer is that we may grow up in him. Speaking the truth in love. 
And that's what Jesus did. Jesus is being tempted of the devil. The love doesn't show up so much in the event that's recorded in the scripture. But his answer is the word. Each time he says it is written. It is written. It is written. Folks, if Jesus, who was without sin and anointed of the Holy Ghost without measure, meaning he had, he had all the, the capacity, the potential for anything and everything that God could do or would do or wanted done, any and every miracle, any and every spectacular event is resident and present and dwelling in Jesus. And Jesus still goes back to the, using the word, speaking the word against the devil's temptation. Well, if he did that, seems to me like it would be okay for us to do that too. If that was the way that Jesus operated, I guess I used to think that Jesus walked around the earth with unlimited power available to him, not because of the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Who knew anything about that? But because he was the Son of God. It would seem to make more sense in my old way of thinking that Jesus would have answered the devil by saying, get out of here. You know I'm the Son of God. But he didn't. He didn't try to tell the devil who he was. He tried or successfully used the word of God to overcome the work of the devil against him. That fascinated me. I, I'm, I'm kind of stuck on this. I've been meditating over this for the last several days. Remembering the early times, the, the first times when I heard the word. One of the things that got me started on this is that Brother Hagin used to say uh, pretty regularly, pretty frequently, he said that a lot of the faith teachers were teaching faith from the level where they were at the time and not where people started. That's one thing that always amazed me about Brother Hagin because of all the present-day circumstances and, and um, testimonies and stuff like that that took place. He always went back to the beginnings. He always went back to the elementary things. He always went back to the ABCs, the foundation levels of stuff. He didn't try to teach faith from where he had grown over 50-some-odd years. He taught faith from the standpoint of where people were starting off. A lot of ministers don't do that, and I have to watch to make sure that I stay simple and stay basic too. And when I think back of, at places where I started, the overriding thing that I remember is how precious the word of God became to me. When I understood that it was the power of God to bring about anything and everything that Jesus purchased for us with his own blood through his death, burial, and resurrection. When I think back to that and coming to the understanding, coming to the knowledge of what the word of God was, what God gave it to us for, and how to use it, man, that book became precious. It became Alive, It became a living thing, just like it says it is. The word is quick and powerful, full of life and power, one translation says. Thank God the word's alive. It's alive. Well, how do we see ourselves? If James is talking about it, if he's using, uh, um, it seems to me it would have to be a Holy Ghost-inspired illustration, talking about looking at yourself in the mirror, and whether or not you forget what you look like. Then it seems to me that we ought to make the image that the Bible portrays us to be. The image that the Bible indicates that we have been made through the sacrifice of Jesus. It seems to me that that image should be something that's worth working on. Shouldn't it? It's like a whole of our Christian life is us painting a picture of who we are. And who we've been made. But one glance isn't enough. We've got to go back and look at it again and again and again. Over and over and over again. The concept of calling things that be not as though they were. Remember when that was so far into us? 
over time and over the experience of many years, we come to the place where it becomes common to us. It becomes our first reaction rather than something we have to think through. Now, wait a minute, what am I supposed to do here? What are the steps I'm supposed to take on this? And thank God it does become a part of who we are if we continue in it. But I remember the principles of faith being so foreign, calling things that be not as though they were. I remember arguing with the devil about whether or not I was lying when I did it. Thankfully, that doesn't last forever. You get to the point where the devil knows you know what you're doing, that you know what the principles are, and that you know how to stand against the work that he's bringing against you. And he doesn't bother you in that way anymore. He bothers you in, in other ways. He never quits. He never gives up. But the application of some of these principles, some of the most basic principles, continuing in the word, being a doer of the word, the word having the power of God, the word spoken, releasing the power of God to make you who Jesus died for you to be. Thank God for the word. Thank God for the word. I remember a part of my daily Bible reading Early on, whenever I'd come to the 119th Psalm, that one was a killer. That thing's got like 175 verses in it, but it just counts as one Psalm. So if you're reading five a day or whatever the case is, that's a tough day because it goes on and on and on. But when the word started becoming real to me, when I began to, to recognize the purpose of the word, I love Psalm 119 because every verse is David showing his appreciation for God's word. Every verse. Thank God for his word. Thank God for the word. I remember when Jesus was talking in Mark chapter 7, I think it's verse 13. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and they're raising some kind of issue against him because his disciples didn't wash their hands the right way on the Sabbath day or whatever. They always had some life-changing issue that they were complaining about. But Jesus talked about them making the word of God of none effect by their traditions by their traditions. The word tradition there means preconceived notions. They thought they knew God. They thought they knew what God was all about. They thought they understood the character and the nature of God. But those ideas that they had about him robbed them of the power of God. Now folks, you have to realize that the word of God is the most powerful thing in the universe. Everything we know about this physical realm, this natural life, was created from the unseen world created by God speaking words. Well, if the, if the word of God, God speaking his word, which was, would be him speaking his will, if it created, if those words created everything that we see and know about this natural life, this physical realm, then it has to be the greater power. That which was created by the words could not be greater or stronger or more powerful than the words that brought it into existence. Yet Jesus is saying that the word of God for them became of no effect, was stripped of its power because of wrong thinking. Because of wrong thinking. Well, that should be a warning signal to us too then, shouldn't it? That's all part of what we're our looking at the word of God, looking in the glass, looking at the mirror of what the Word of God paints us to be and tells us that we have been made, that becomes all the more important for us to keep our eyes on the Word. Then I started seeing scriptures. Again, I'm talking about when I was 20 years old. I started seeing scriptures where the Bible says, God said, put me in remembrance. Man, that was a tough one for me. Because to go find out what the Word says and then take it back to the Lord in prayer. When you're just starting off, you don't know where anything is. I, um, 
everybody's gone to the iPads and the electronic stuff, and, and it's so much quicker, it's so much easier to get from one place to another, one scripture reference to another, that I put away my Bible a long time ago. Well, several years ago anyway. And, uh, and I, I never see it. I, I put it in a drawer, and I never see it, but I was moving some stuff around the other day and came across it. First time I'd seen it in a long time. And I opened it up, and I remembered this is the Bible that I learned how to believe God, learned how to find out who God was. I've got more marks in that Bible. One of the reasons I put it away in uh, lieu of the iPad is because it got to the point where if I was going to underline anything or highlight anything, I was going to have to get a white highlighter because everything else was colored up. And I started thumbing through, not really reading, but thumbing through some of those pages. And I remember making the notes that I, as I made them. I remember what I underlined and why. And I remember the importance or the wonderful thing that it revealed to me at the time when I started looking at those notes. I spent half a day the other day just looking through, just thumbing through page after page after page. It was so exciting to gain appreciation for the word. It was so exciting. But folks, do you realize what a minority we are? Do you realize what a small percentage of the church population worldwide have the attitude toward the word that we're talking about? Do you realize how few people really have the have come to see or come, the revelation has come to that the word is a tool. The word is given to us as a weapon to defeat the enemy. Do you realize how many people are still just as blind as I was when I was young? Again, it's no reflection on them. I assume Christians love God. I assume everybody loves God. I assume everybody wants God's best. But if that's true, there's so many people that don't know how to get it. Do you remember some of the first times that you believed God? Do you remember some of the first times that you extended your faith toward him on situations that didn't look like it was possible for it to turn around? Oh, I do. I remember some of the early things that I believed God for. And when they came to pass, when I took possession by the confession of his word and realized the results, looking back, they were small, small things in comparison to what we believe God for now, perhaps. But it was like God would become real again and again and again when we received an answer to prayer. For our faith brought something into our possession. I think that we need to work on staying in the place of simplicity with God's word. When we started the church, I didn't know where anything was. I grew up in Alabama and spent several years in Oklahoma. Neither one of those are like California in any way whatsoever. And the only thing that I knew for sure is that I was here because God told us to come. That's all I knew. I had to pray about everything. I had to pray about where to open a bank account. I had to pray about where's an, uh, somebody, someplace that I can get my hair cut. I remember praying about everything. It was funny because several years ago, well, a long time ago, it's been at least 10 years or more, I was uh, thinking back on some of those things, and I said, Lord, you remember when I started having to ask you where to get this or where to get that or, or who to use for this certain part of the church that we were planning, you remember I had to ask you about everything? I said, you told me. You led me to places. He led me to some of the most insignificant things. But it showed his care and his concern. If God is, in any, if God is anything, he is into details. So I asked him. I said, Lord, why don't you do that anymore? And he says, you don't ask me where to get anything done anymore. And I realized that was right. Now I've learned a little bit. I've gained knowledge of the lay of the land. 
I trust myself rather than asking him for everything that I started off with. I miss some of those days. I miss some of those times where you had to put yourself over into the hand of God for everything, every little thing. Money was tight. I've told the story several times. You may remember hearing me say that when we first came out here, even before we got here, I had prayed about whether or not to work another job. My plan was to get a job and um, during the early years of the church and work ourselves to the way to the place where I wouldn't have to work anymore and could be supported by the church. And the Lord told me that that it was okay with him if I did that, but he said it will cost you experience if you go that way. What he was telling me is he wanted me to start off when we had nobody believing God for finances. So I understood that, and so I I said, all right, if that's what you're telling me, Lord, then I'm willing to do it. Beth got a job at uh, a department store over in Laguna Hills Mall. Any of you remember Buffum's? Is that before your time? Well, she got a job over there, and God blessed her greatly. It wasn't that she was making a lot of money, but um, she was making all the money that we, that we had coming in. And I didn't, I, that was hard for me. It was hard for me to live off of just what my wife was bringing in when I had plenty of time. Folks, when nobody's coming to your church, pastoring does not take up much of your time. So it's like I've got plenty of time. Lord, maybe I ought to be working. So I started making some inquiries, got out the wanted, the wanted ads or the want ads in, uh, in the newspaper. That'll date you. Remember newspapers used to have want ads? Remember when there were newspapers? So I'd look through the want ads, and I, I'd see them, simple things like people looking for carriers for newspaper routes and stuff like that, and people wouldn't call me back. I'd leave a, a voicemail for somebody, and they wouldn't call me back. I finally nailed down one job, or was in the process of nailing it down, and it was a delivery thing that worked perfectly into the hours and, and that kind of stuff. The pay was decent. So finally, after talking to them about all the details, I finally said, oh, by the way, what, what would I be delivering? They said, beer and wine. So I said, you know, that may not work for me after all. So that was the one that caused me to realize that God wanted me where I was doing what I wanted to do, what he wanted me to do. And so I said, okay, Lord, I see, I get it. I'm not supposed to work. But God would supernaturally do things with our finances. We were eating good on $25 a week. And even then, you can't do that. I mean, certainly you can't do that now. But God did some of the most miraculous things because we were trusting him to come through. We were believing in his word. We were standing on his word. We were being doers of his word. And he took care of every little thing. Every little thing. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 22. God gives instruction to his people Israel and also to us. My son, attend to my words. Put the word of God in first place. Incline your ear unto my sayings. Nothing's more important than what God says about you or your situation. Let them, my words, not depart from before your eyes. See yourself with what God's word says. That goes back to painting the picture or the picture that the word paints for us and us remembering and holding fast to that picture instead of the other things that we see and feel. He said, keep them, my words, in the midst of your heart. Folks, the fight of faith is to maintain a good report throughout. The Old Testament story of the 12 spies going into the promised land. Ten of them came back with an evil report. Their evil report was we can't do what God said. We're unable 
to do what he said that we should do. But Caleb and Joshua maintained a good report. The Hall of Fame of Heroes of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. That's all about these guys that maintained a good report. See, when all the circumstances are against you and everything looks like it's not working, the fight of faith, the good fight of faith is to maintain the good report. Keep speaking God's word. Keep speaking God's word. Verse 22 tells you why. Proverbs 4, 22. For they, my words, are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Remember Jesus said we read over in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, Solomon's saying the same thing. My words are life unto those that find them. There's a searching process. There's a search to the word of God to find the blessings that God says are ours. There's a search. There's a commitment. There's a decision-making process. Not just making a decision of what you're going to do in this circumstance, but what you're going to do in your whole life, in every area, every facet of your life. Their life unto those that find them. The word find doesn't just mean look for. It means to investigate, to dig into, to dig into. When I first heard Brother Hagen, I was 22 years old, I think. And I heard a guy talking about the Word of God like it was real. I heard a man talking about God honoring his Word and keeping his Word and bringing his Word to pass like it was a guarantee. The more I became acquainted with Brother Hagen and over the next couple of years going to Bible school and and uh, becoming part of the crusade team and that kind of stuff. The more I came around Brother Hagen, the more impossible the job seemed to be. He wouldn't like to hear me saying this kind of stuff because he wouldn't want the attention drawn to himself. But I remember when, I, when it dawned on me just how much Brother Hagen was living according to the Word, how much he knew of the Word, Man, I didn't even know where in the Bible to find out where something was, much less knowing what it is or what it says. And it seemed like, and I remember the devil trying to use this against me, it seemed like such an impossible task. How does anybody get there? And, of course, Brother Hagin would talk about walking with God for 50 years and that kind of stuff. Well, to a 22-year-old kid, something like that, 50 years is forever. 50 years will never come. It's too far away. It'll never come. But when I look back at what the God's done through his word and with his word in my life and in my family and in our church. I'm just amazed. I'm amazed at how God has changed things. I'm amazed at how God's changed me. You know, I really didn't get into this thinking that I was going to change a lot. And that's where the biggest changes and adjustments have been made. I'm the one that's different. It's not just a matter of finding out or learning the word. It's not just a matter of how much I've gotten by study. When you become a doer of the word, it changes you. It changes you. My words are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. You know, some... 40, what, almost 40 years, 38 maybe. When I look back over those 38 years, I'm just as hungry for the word now as I was then. I see that there's just as much to learn of the word now, 38 years down the road, than what I perceived that there was back then. Because the word's alive. It is the power of God to deliver, to rescue, to make safe, to make sound, and to heal. God's word is his answer. God sent his word and healed us. God sent his word to provide every blessing that we could ever hope for. The word of God is God himself.
Thank God for his word. Thank God for his word. I know this is simple. I know this is not some big revelation for anybody. But thank God for his word. It's changed everything about me. It's changed everything about my family. It's created everything about this church that's good. The stuff about our church that's not good, that's me. But every good thing is a result of God's word. Everything that we have, everything he's provided has come because of his word. Thank God for his word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how precious your word is to us. How precious your word is. We thank you, Lord, that you watch over your word to perform it. Forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one smallest part of your word shall fail. Thank you, Father, for revealing to us just how faithful you are. For revealing to us who you are and how you operate and what you've done for us all by your word. Thank you, Father, that your word is life to us and it's health to all our flesh. Thank you for the changes that your word has made in our lives. And we feel like we're just getting started, Lord. Many of us have walked with you for a long time. But at least for me, it's like I'm just getting started. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for making yourself known to us. Not trying to stay hidden. Not trying to be a mystery. But revealing to us. And opening our eyes. To who you are. And to how much you love us. Thank you for your word, Father. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank God for his word. It's an answer book. It's got an answer for whatever your situation is. Hallelujah. Well, thanks for being here, listening to my stories. Thank God for his word. Amen. You're dismissed.